Welcome to the Archives of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Agents of the FBI have a history of illegal break-ins to homes and offices and a history of conducting wiretaps without a search warrant. In the years when J. Edgar Hoover was the director of the FBI, these warrantless break-ins came to be known as black bag jobs. This archive edition of Radio Curious was recorded in 1995 with Wesley Swearingen, a former FBI agent and author of FBI Secrets, an Agent's Exposé. His book describes some of the black bag warrantless searches in which he was involved and his opinion of these activities. Swearingen concludes his book by saying that the Hoover era will continue to haunt the FBI because Hoover knowingly undermined the United States Constitution. When I spoke with Wesley Swearingen from his home near Tucson, Arizona in December of 1995, I asked him what he meant by that. FBI uh, flaunted the Constitution by uh, doing uh, what we called black bag jobs or uh, illegal entries into the homes and offices of uh, individuals that uh, Hoover and uh, his associates felt uh, were enemies of this country, starting off with the Communist Party and then later on it became uh, religious groups uh, such as the uh, Nation of Islam in Chicago and then uh, other groups that opposed the, the Vietnam War, and then uh, groups like the uh, Black Panther Party and the Weatherman Underground Organization, a, a radical offshoot of the Students for a Democratic Society. And uh, in the security division, we just flaunted the, the Constitution. I mean, it didn't mean anything to us. Well, how were the targets of the black bag jobs identified? Well, first of all, uh, I guess I can better describe it if I talk about the Communist Party in Chicago, because I'm more familiar with that. We would uh, identify the top leaders and then uh, target them for bag jobs. And if we found information that was uh, worth uh, going after later on, say uh, in another month or two, uh, then we would repeat that if there was nothing in a person's home or office, then we would uh, go after other individuals. And if we suspected someone as a courier later on when there were uh, people who became fugitives because they had been indicted for a violation of the Smith Act and then uh, disappeared, we would uh, try to get information through black bag jobs of uh, the location of uh, these fugitives through the couriers. And you know, maybe they would have letters that they were taking to other people uh, who might know something about the location of a particular fugitive. Well, in, in your book, uh, you indicate that you were 
uh, an FBI agent who did these black bag jobs. So that means that you actually went into people's homes and businesses? Yes, I did. And when you did that, um, did you leave it in such a way that people had known that you were there? No. Uh, all the ones that I did, uh, we measured first, and uh, just about that time, uh, Polaroid developed the uh, instant camera, which was uh, great assistance because if we wanted to look at someone's papers on a desk, for instance, we could take a, a photograph, and in, uh, in about 60 seconds, we'd have a photograph of exactly uh, how things were placed on the desk. And uh, before that, uh, the development of the Polaroid, we would have to take notes, copious notes, and we would uh, use a ruler to, to measure maybe an envelope uh, so far from the front of the desk and so far from the side of the desk. And, try to remember exactly how to place it. And then after we made those notes, we would uh, open up the letter. And if there's something in there worth uh, uh, photographing, we would photograph it and put it back exactly the way we found it. So how, how did you open the letter so that it could be sealed without it being revealed that it had been opened? Well, uh, if they were actually sealed, then uh, we would try to steam it open. And... Uh, it's not too difficult if you have the time. If, uh, say, we went in at uh, 9 o'clock in the morning after someone had gone to work uh, on an eight-hour job, and he, he was there at 8 o'clock in the morning, and then uh, if everything else uh, was all right, that meant that uh, we could stay there probably till 4 o'clock in the afternoon before he'd get home. But we always had those other, uh, other agents uh, following them to work to make sure that that's where they were. So if we had the time, then we'd uh, start a little uh, teapot on the stove, uh, you know, use the, the person's uh, stove to generate a little steam and uh, open it up and read it, photograph it if it was important, and then uh, uh, reseal it. How pervasive was this? You're talking about it now in the early 50s, during the height of the communist uh, McCarthy scare. Well, uh I consider it uh, very pervasive. In uh, Chicago at the time, we had about 275 agents. There were about 25 of us, close to uh, 10% of the office, doing nothing but bag jobs on the Communist Party. And we did this. This, this was our only job for several years. Going into people's homes and, and looking at their personal papers. And Yes, and going into their offices. You know, when they'd go home at night, then we'd, we'd go into their offices. How would you get in to either the home or the office? Well, the safest way was to try to get a, a key. And uh, if, if we were uh, going into someone's home, normally all these people lived in apartment buildings in Chicago, so it wasn't too difficult to... Uh, make arrangements with uh, the janitor or the superintendent of the building uh, just to give us a key. Of course, we would always have to check his background first and make sure that he was on our side. So in other words, the janitor or the superintendent knew that the, uh, this bag job was going on or about to go on at some point? Well, they, they had a pretty good idea that uh, this was what we were going to do. 
And in some instances, uh, we did let them know that uh, we were actually on the premises just so that, uh, and in one particular case, it proved to be uh, very worthwhile because a neighbor accidentally saw me and another agent go into a person's apartment and she called the police. Yeah. After she called the police, then she called manager of the building and the, the manager of the building immediately called the FBI office and told whoever answered the phone in the office that you know, FBI agents were in an apartment and one of the neighbors just called the police. And so they passed it on to the radio room and the, the gal in the radio room uh, said, you know, repeated, said that a neighbor had called the police. <laughs> so we packed up our belongings and got out and uh, just as we hopped into the car, the police were rounding the corner we were almost caught. That was about the closest situation that I had ever been involved with, and it was close to you know, 500 bag jobs in Chicago. I understand that after you wrote your book, your boat was raided by the FBI. Was that a bag job, or was it a raid? Uh, that was a raid. That was uh, after I had written my first manuscript, which uh, I titled FBI Chicanery. The reason, uh, I think the, the reason that the FBI created it, uh, I had already talked to an attorney who uh, had gone to the Department of Justice and was giving them uh, some of this corruption that I wanted to report to the, the Attorney General. But the FBI claims that they found some of my material down in Jonestown. This was back in 1978 when Jim Jones gave this Kool-Aid or whatever it was. To, right, the cyanide Kool-Aid to 900 people? Yeah, and they either committed suicide or were murdered. I don't know that anybody ever figured that one out. But some of my papers were down there, and of course I was completely surprised. I had never heard of Jonestown before or, or People's Temple, but I discovered that uh, my attorney was also their attorney in San Francisco. And when they were in the office one time, they found out that uh, a former FBI was giving information to the attorney to give to the attorney general. And they were so paranoid that they had looked at my files when they were in the office, unbeknownst to my attorney. Uh, These are the Jonestown and People's Temple people. Yeah, the People's yeah. Temple people did a bag trap on my attorney's <laughs> <laughs> files in San Francisco, and they, they took some of the information. I, I had nothing in there about Jonestown. I didn't even know that they existed. I mean, I, I might have read about them in the newspaper, but uh, you know, it was just something in, in passing. I had no idea uh, that they were clients. Well, Wes, you've mentioned the bag jobs that um, Hoover knowingly did and instructed his people to do. And there's a whole list, a whole shopping list in your book in FBI Secrets, an Agent's Exposé, which uh, is published by South End Press. What are some of the other violations of the Constitution that you can tell us about? Well, just in general, the, the uh, kinds of uh, dirty tricks, uh, I don't know that they're necessarily violations of the Constitution, but certainly violations of a person's civil rights to uh, you know, police authorities to abusing someone's civil rights, like uh, making them targets of COINTELPRO, that's code word for 
counterintelligence program, and certain individuals were chosen to uh, either be fired from their jobs or harassed or break up their divorce, just make life miserable in general. Some instances they were framed and put in jail. Other times the FBI arranged uh, assassinations. Now tell us about those. You, you mentioned in your book that the supervisor of the Chicago office was a, an accessory before the fact of uh, some murders in Chicago. Yes. Uh, the agent who told me about this uh, years after it happened had been uh, one of the agents I worked with in Chicago for many years on these black bag jobs. And we trusted each other uh, you know, with our lives. He felt that uh, I was sympathetic because I had done all these things in the past. And he, uh, we were having a discussion. We were at uh, Quantico for a, a training session, and uh, we happened to be sitting there in the, uh, the little uh, restaurant uh, drinking 3-2 beer, which was the, the strongest thing that they could have there at Quantico. But we were discussing old times, and you know, we hadn't seen each other for... Oh, I guess it was uh, maybe 15 years. And uh, we were talking about the bag jobs back in Chicago. And I said, uh, you know, what, what we were doing, we, we thought that was bad. I said, uh, what their agents are doing out in Los Angeles are worse. They're you know, putting uh, innocent people in jail uh, just because they're a leader of the Black Panther Party. He said, well, I got a better one than that. And then he told me about... Uh, the raid that the Chicago police did on uh, Panther headquarters in 1969 where uh, Fred Hampton and uh, Mark Clark were shot to death. And uh, he said that the FBI had set up the Chicago police to do this raid, hopefully killing maybe a couple of dozen Black Panthers, but uh, it, that particular night there were only two of them there. And, uh, you know, I just I, I couldn't believe it when he said this. When you uh, talk about this in your book, you make reference to Greg York as being the supervisor in the Chicago office. Is that his real name? No, that's a fictitious name I use just to protect his privacy and the privacy of his uh, family and children. There would be no point in using his real name. The uh, case was in court. Uh, no one was tried or uh, convicted. The only thing that came out of it was a civil suit where the judge says, yes, there was a violation of a civil, their civil rights and the, the uh, survivors were awarded $1.8 million. So, mm -hmm. you know, my mentioning his name was uh, really not important. I'd just be harassing him and opening myself and probably the publisher up to a lawsuit. But, uh, you know, his real name means nothing. You're listening to a 1995 archive edition of Radio Curious with former FBI agent Wesley Swearingen, author of FBI Secrets, an Agent's Exposé. I'm Barry Vogel. Wes, I want to ask you about where you draw the line in your exposé and um, in why you have chosen to uh, write this book about the agency that you say in the preface that you loved so much? Well, I, I draw the line at uh, what I consider uh, wrongdoing. Now, I'm not exposing uh, 
know, other secrets. I'm not uh, exposing other investigations. I am trying to expose just what I personally know of where the FBI abused the power of their office, where they violated the Constitution, and just plain outright used uh, unethical tactics against people who have a legal right to express their political beliefs in this country. What I'm leading to is the history of how the aura or fact of untouchability of the FBI developed in that they can get away with the bag jobs, that they can get away with being an accessory before the fact to murder, and at the same time are involved in uh, catching bank robbers. Well, it all started when uh, J. Edgar Hoover took over as director of the FBI back in 1924, and the attorney general gave him complete authority to uh, do whatever he wanted to straighten out the organization because it was so corrupt when he took over. But it was a different kind of corruption. The uh, agents then were taking kickbacks and just covering over uh, certain investigations. So Hoover took over, and he had this blanket authority. And he started out to do well, and he got so much authority that I guess he figured, hey, you know, this this is pretty neat. I've got more power than the president of the United States. And uh, as he got more power and more power, uh, members of Congress were afraid of him. And uh, whenever anyone tried to criticize him. It didn't make any difference whether it was a member of Congress or someone in the media. Hoover would have an investigation conducted on this person's background, and if there was anything at all uh, in the person's background, Hoover would uh, bring it to this person's attention and say, hey, you stop talking about me or we're going to expose uh, all the things that you don't want anyone to know about. And so he was using extortion tactics on uh, members of the media, members of Congress, uh, even uh, presidents of the United States. And so everyone just bowed to him. And when someone has that much authority, there's nothing you can do. I mean, some people tried to expose him, and uh, they were just neutralized, as Hoover would call it. When you say uh, he ex- was using this power of extortion on uh, presidents, can you give us some specifics? Well, probably the, the closest thing was uh, John Kennedy and his brother Bobby, who were attorney general, who was attorney general. And when Kennedy started doing certain things and Bobby was uh, telling whoever this and that, uh, the FBI conducted an investigation on John Kennedy and found that uh, he was having some extra marital affairs uh, prior to becoming president and uh, he was confronted with this and so he he backed off on uh, some of the things that uh, he was planning to do. Were there any um, pre- inauguration, pre-Kennedy inauguration issues that resulted in Kennedy reappointing Hoover as the director of the FBI? 
I don't know of any personally, but the thing is, there wasn't any president who really had nerve enough to ask Hoover to retire, even when he was eligible, when he was old enough to retire. When you say nerve enough, what do you mean? Uh, they were just afraid of their jobs. They, they were afraid that uh, if, if they asked Hoover to step down, that he was going to expose something in their background that they didn't want exposed. And this uh, flows from what you were saying, where the attorney general gave uh, Hoover the uh, unprecedented authority to do pretty much what he wanted, and it mushroomed and developed so that he had such an arsenal of knowledge that he could use it against even the presidents? Well, the the attorney general did, and and Congress did, and the president himself did, because everybody was afraid of him. And now... Does that authority extend to the director of the FBI in the present day? Well, probably not as much because we supposedly have uh, congressional guidelines that the FBI has to operate within. And there is supposed to be an oversight by the attorney general the Department of Justice. But the thing is, you know, I, even though these guidelines exist, I don't know how effective it's going to be when all the FBI has to do is lie to the Department of Justice. And certainly there's a, a perfect case uh, right now under investigation, and that's uh, the Ruby Ridge uh, fiasco where uh, Vicki Weaver shot and killed I mean, the Senate had hearings, and I think it was five agents who uh, refused to testify. Take, they were taking the Fifth Amendment. I mean, you've got uh, agents who have sworn to uphold the Constitution, and they're called before a, a tribunal, such as uh, the, the Senate, and they say, oh, I can't tell you anything about that. I'm going to claim the Fifth Amendment because I might have done something wrong. Where does all this lead? It seems like that we have an agency which is part of the executive department of our uh, three parts of government uh, that's just gone radically out of control, that it can do what it wants. Well, uh, it has been doing what it It did what it wanted to do for uh, all the years that uh, I worked for Hoover uh, within limitations. Uh, you know, there's certain things that you just uh, can't blatantly do. It it, uh, it was uh, slightly different than uh, Hitler's Gestapo. I mean, they just didn't care if they wanted to do something. They'd flat out do it. They'd walk down the street and shoot someone, whereas here the FBI would destroy them emotionally so that they would kill themselves. Right. Uh, or uh, they would uh, have them set up by someone else. You know, they, the FBI would condone killing like the Panthers in uh, Chicago and uh, two of the Panthers in Los Angeles. You know, there were the word limitations that the FBI could go to just because if uh, if the people knew about it, they just wouldn't have tolerated it. I mean, Hoover would have been out on his ear before the end of the day had Congress 
and the Attorney General and the President known what was going on. Well, when you talk about Ruby Ridge and compare it to uh, Hoover being out on his ear, uh, have there been changes in the time since Hoover uh, uh, died and, and terminated his position as director of FBI? Or maybe his ghost still lingers? I think his ghost still lingers. Uh, the FBI claims there have been changes. I didn't see any changes uh, during the five years after he died, and uh, I was still in. In fact, uh, he was already dead when Geronimo Pratt was framed. Hoover died in April, and Geronimo Pratt was framed for a murder he didn't commit uh, a month later. You really reveal that story in depth in your book, so I guess the listeners uh, who are interested will just have to get the book. Um, we're coming to the close of, of our time, and, and I want to ask you one more question. Is What does a person do uh, to change this level of corruption, that, that this uh, incorrect way for our government to operate? Well, it, it's really difficult to say when there's so much secrecy, but one of the ways is to... You know, pay attention to what's going on, and if you uh, see something, uh, report it to your congressman. Uh, if you're suspicious that you know the FBI is doing this or that, if if the uh, Department of Justice won't do anything and Congress won't do anything, you know maybe go to the uh, American Civil Liberties Union and talk to them. And uh, there are times that uh, you know they will uh, stand a, a person. Uh, being victimized. We have uh, a, a very real aspect of that story in, uh, here in Mendocino County with Judy Berry, but that uh, is another program for another time. Wesley Swearingen, I want to thank you very much for joining us here on Radio Curious. And before we close, I'd like to ask you the question I ask all of my guests at the end of an interview, and that is, could you tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately? Yeah. In fact, I have it right here, Official and Confidential, The Secret Life of Jagger Hoover by uh, Anthony Summers. That's S-U-M-M-E-R-S. Very explosive book. It doesn't put any punches. And it, it goes uh, much further into uh, Hoover's individual personality and his sexual preferences than uh, I do in my book. Well, Wesley Swearingen, thank you very much for joining us here on Radio Curious. Thank you, Barry, for having me. You've been listening to a 1995 interview with Wesley Swearingen, a former FBI agent and author of FBI Secrets, an Agent's Exposé. The book that Wesley Swearingen recommends is Official and Confidential, the Secret Life of J. Edgar Hoover by Anthony Summers. This interview was recorded in December 1995. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah,
California 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.